Hi everyone, I'm Laura Warnod, and this is the Wonder Workers podcast. Wonder Workers is an interview-based podcast where I invite change makers to talk about their experience, their mission, and drive towards impacting the world, and ultimately to inspire, educate, and empower entrepreneurs, business leaders, and owners, and young people on how they can build together a more sustainable world. This community of wonder workers act behind the scenes to lead the world towards a new era of purpose, self-actualization, and innovation. This is a generation who shows no limits to what they can accomplish, no tolerance for dehumanization, and use their uniqueness as a real power to change the world. We want to invite you, responsible leaders, entrepreneurs, young people, and all other listeners in your quest for purpose to give you too the power to change the world. But having powers alone does not make us superheroes. Even them need allies. It's only when we accept our differences, combine our powers, belong and thrive together that our forces can turn into superpowers. We are Wonder Workers, a community of change makers, entrepreneurs, business owners, and aspiring ones who use their superpowers collectively to change the world. So tell me, what are your superpowers? Stacia Bedford was featured in Forbes, Metro, Evening Standard, and Elite Business Magazine. She is an accomplished, dynamic, and disruptive repeat entrepreneur who pioneered the bridal tech space with the innovative e-commerce platform she co-founded, Prim and Clover, a first-of-its-kind online customizable bridal brand, wedding dress design tool, and marketplace. With an international industry broad network and more than 15 years of marketing, fashion design, retail, and management experience, Stacia specializes in entrepreneurship, coaching, leadership, team building, fashion, and marketing. For the last five years, she's coached founders through launching and scaling their startups and MMEs in the fashion, tech, and creative industries at the prestigious London College of Fashion, where she leads the Master of Fashion Entrepreneurship and Innovation course. I'm so glad to have someone who works in fashion education because I really believe that's where the future is and where change is going to happen. We've had such an inspiring and insightful conversation about entrepreneurship, about the fashion industry, leadership, and a lot of different things of the life of being a founder, basically. Just another note from me. If you want to follow our Wonder Workers journey and community, just jump on LinkedIn and Instagram under Wonder Workers podcast account where you'll find all past episodes. If you really enjoyed the episode, I would really love to hear more from you and get your feedback and let me know if there's anything else or anyone else you would like to hear from next in the Wonder Workers podcast. So yeah, enjoy this episode and let's jump in. Hi, Stacia. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good, good, good. I'm really happy that the weather and like summer is finally here. I'm getting used to British summers after a decade without air conditioning or oh, yeah, as of course, the Brits yeah. say air con. You know what? It's really funny because I don't know if you heard about Ted Lasso, the TV show. Yes. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, I finished the whole series yesterday, which is, by the way, amazing. And he said something like, I finally, like he's American, obviously, yeah. and he lives in the UK during the, the season. And uh, he said, I finally understood that AC is a right and not something that I take for granted. It's true. I <laughs> FaceTimed with my father the other day and he was in a fleece because the air conditioning was so cold in their house mm. that he was wearing a fleece <laughs> jacket. And I was like, you're kidding me right now. I am dripping yeah. with sweat. But well, we get used to it. Where are you from? Actually? I'm originally from the Chicago area. Chicago, yes. Very extreme temperatures, really hot mm -hmm. in the summer and really, really cold, mm. bitter cold in the winter. Mm. Lots of snow. Yeah, can imagine. Nice. Well, before we start talking about what you do at the London College of Fashion and your experience in the fashion industry, which I'm really excited to be talking about because it seems like you have a lot of experience and wisdom to share on, on that. The question is like, who is Taisha? 
What's your story? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Where do I start? No, um, I would say I'm probably a jack of all trades. I, I don't want to say master of none because there's still time <laughs> left for me to master something. Yeah, I just bounced around a lot. I've lived a lot of places. I've had a lot of careers. I think this is probably my fifth career Wow. Change. I grew up wanting to be a famous actress, and I pursued that into my mid-20s. So I lived in Los Angeles, and I actually hosted a television show, which I think here is called, you know, when you're like a TV presenter. So mm. that was not what I had aspired to do, but mm. that's where I ended up, which, I mean, I was really, really fortunate because there are lots of actors who spend a lot of time auditioning for lots and lots of things and don't really get to do much of anything. So that was lots of fun. Traveled around on an RV for months out of the year, basically following and chasing adrenaline sports junkies, doing like adrenaline sports and competitions and stuff. So we wow. would like follow them. <laughs> yeah. We would follow the competition. I would interview them. And then they always had me trying the sport, which usually ended in disaster, but they would like, <laughs> quote unquote, fix it in post. So they would make it look like I could do whatever sport it was, like sandboarding, kiteboarding, kayak surfing. I don't know. There was so many weird That's things. Amazing. And then I moved to New York City and I ended up working in the music industry. So I worked for Universal Music for about five years for their jazz label, um, the Verve Music Group, and um, worked with some really amazing musicians and actually Jamie Cullum, who's from here. Hmm. So he yeah. was like a platinum selling artist here and he came to the U.S. and mm. we were trying to promote him in the U.S. So yeah, like I said, lots of lots of different things. But I think leading up to London College of Fashion, two things happened. Well, I had dropped out of university to follow my dream of becoming an actress, uh, much to my parents' chagrin, because they really, really wanted me to finish college which, I mean, of course, that's what a parent wants. In the U.S., probably more so than here, it limits you in terms of what you can do mm. for a job. Um, and I was really, really fortunate that Universal Music Group didn't care that I didn't have my college diploma. But when a recession hit and I had left that job and gone on to work in digital music and it was the dot bomb. So it was there was, you know, all of these yeah. um, startup tech music companies that I w mm. was working for, you know, slowly <laughs> yeah. shut until there weren't any left yeah. and then oh, I was like goodness. oh I gotta go <laughs> start looking for something else and yeah all the doors were kind of being shut in my face and at the same time I had kind of started my own businesses on the side so I was really really into vintage clothing I still am but my parents at the time lived in Ohio so I moved from Chicago all over the place my parents ended up in Ohio and they were great charity shops and thrift stores there. <laughs> so I would go there and spend like, I don't know, one or two dollars finding all these great like sort of designer pieces, yeah. pieces that were vintage. Yeah. And because it was so expensive in New York City, my friends loved coming to my apartment and like basically, you know, shopping my closet. Mm -hmm. So I called, <laughs> I would turn my studio apartment into like a little store once a month. And I called it Stacia Studio and I would serve cheap kava or whatever yeah. I could find, yeah. um, Prosecco or whatever, and have like bagels and basically it would turn into like an all day into the evening party, dress up party where people would shop. And it started out as friends and it became friends of friends and then friends of friends of friends. And yeah, they were like, people would look forward to Station Studio. What are you going to do it next? Mm -hmm. And I probably, if I had really thought of it as a business and I had mm -hmm. the right sort of, I don't want to say backing, but like knowledge, mm -hmm. um, I probably could have turned that into uh, quite a nice little business. Yeah. <laughs> and at the time, Etsy was just kind of burgeoning. So yeah. I started selling stuff on Etsy as well. So yeah, that was kind of my first foray into my own fashion business. And then I started messing around making jewelry with broken bits and bobs from um, like boxes of costume jewelry that I would get and again it was sort of like friends of mine would see necklaces and stuff that I was wearing they're like oh where mm -hmm. did you get that I want one of those so I started making them for friends for birthdays and then just kind of expanded from there and I was in a boutique a really nice Gigi boutique in the meatpacking district and mm -hmm. the woman who owned the shop walked up to me and said oh where did you get that necklace it's really cool and I was like actually I made it so she was like oh do you have more of those and I was yeah. like well not this one particularly because yeah. it's, you know, one of a kind one or piece. whatever. Yeah. 
So that is how that started. So I started Revival Jewelry is what I was calling it. And there are other companies now called Revival. So if I ever went back to doing it again, I'd have to come up with a new name. But yeah. Um, but yeah, so I started selling my jewelry all over New York City. I did a trunk show at Henry Bendel. Around that time, my parents convinced me to go back to university. I was like 30-something. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like. Yeah. I gotta go back to university mm. as a thirty-year-old, mm. and actually, it would have made I think a really funny movie. There have been some similar films <laughs> made about where you're like, you know, this old lady going yeah. back to to school or whatever. Um, but it was really fun, and I started taking classes on um, marketing, advertising, and actually entrepreneurship. So I was really kind of dabbling in that space. I'm still kind of doing doing my jewelry on the side and doing pop-ups and things. And um, right around the time I graduated, I met my now husband, who's mm-hmm. British. I was over here in London. And he's the one who really kind of pushed me to make it like a fully-fledged business. I think mm-hmm. he did it quite selfishly because he wanted me to, to like, stay. move here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he was like, oh, maybe you should look for a course here. You know, you just fit, you know why don't you get, go on to get your master's mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I found a master's in fashion entrepreneurship at London mm-hmm. College of Fashion. And thankfully, I got in. And yeah, so I pursued launching my jewelry brand here and met my now former business partner on the course. And she, at the time, I was kind of looking at having my jewelry be customizable. So mm. when I would sell at pop-ups, I'd have a lot of customers come to me and say, oh my gosh, I love that design, mm-hmm. but do you have it something like this in that color or do you have this kind of mm. brooch or whatever? So that's when I thought, okay, well, I'll set up the design on a website and then people can sort of drag and drop things out of a quote-unquote you know, Mm. jewelry box that would be, you know, the different buttons and brooches and whatever. So it would be that design, but they could kind of make it themselves. Exactly. So they could play, they could play with it. So that's what I was looking to launch after Mm. the course, Um, kind of this idea of customizable jewelry and accessories. And my former business partner, she was on the course and she wanted to do mask customizable ready to wear. Mm. And so we were in the same friend group. And because our projects were similar, we shared a lot of secondary research and stuff like that. And then after we graduated, she said, why don't we start a brand together? I'll do the clothes. I'll do the ready-to-wear. And you do the the sort of like jewelry and accessories. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, that could be interesting. And so we kind of set out to do more primary research because neither one of us had really done a lot of primary research into that. Mm-hmm. And I realized that scale was going to be a really big problem for me because I only had what I had. And so to go out and shop and buy more stuff and it's like how, you know, there's like this fine balance or fine line of how much inventory you keep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you get, I mean, if you're really lucky, you get like a thousand sales in a month, Yeah. then what do you do? Because all your, everything you've got is gone. And, you know, how do you fulfill that order? And same with the customizable ready-to-wear. They're just, there's so much available on the high mm. street for women to buy. And yeah. they, we found out they just didn't want to wait like six to eight weeks to get a piece yeah, of clothing, you know, that yeah. they could, just so they could customize mm. the buttons or something. So then my husband, well, he wasn't my husband then, he, but he proposed and I started looking for a wedding dress. And, of course, well, at that time, Pinterest was, you know, the thing. The place, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, of course, I started my Pinterest. It still is, though. <laughs> yeah, so. But now there's, like, Lemonade. You know, Instagram is much bigger now. and Yeah. So, yeah, I kind of, you know, would see different things. Be like, oh, I like the top of that, but I want the bottom of that. And it kind of dawned on me as I was looking, there really wasn't anyone doing true customizable bridal wear where you could basically design your own dress from a set mm. of, like, sort of standard silhouettes or Mm. you know things so I said to my former business partner hey why don't we you know consider doing this I I can't be the only bride who's you know wants this yeah so yeah so we again set out and did the research and found out yeah there Mm. were lots of brides especially busy brides especially London brides who Mm. were kind of like they don't have time to like go and have a look at all the bridal stores to find the perfect dress exactly yeah it's like they knew what they wanted but Mm. yeah it was sort of like 
yeah, it's a lot. And let's face it, the bridal space is kind of antiquated. I mean, Mm. it's not... (laughs) <laughs> it, yes. it, it it's been kind of as it's been for a long long time yeah and now weddings are changing people are doing more days of it you know and mm-hmm. having almost like little mini festivals and mm-hmm. things like that so it was kind of the right time this is all pre-covid of course and yeah so we ended up launching prim and clover which was the first of its kind customizable bridal wear brand where we had this dress builder that you could build your wedding dress based on you know sort of number of necklines and skirts and silhouettes and stuff and then yeah brides could try the pieces on at home Mm -hmm. choose what they wanted and then we'd make it and deliver it to their door so that's where kind of there was a bit of a not the right time in the market situation Mm -hmm. because women still even though they didn't have time wanted that experience of shopping for a wedding dress Mm. like they wanted to go their friends and their have that glass of champagne while they're choosing the dress exactly we kind of remedied that by saying oh you can throw a party at home you know we can even do a kit for you and blah 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 and yeah it just it wasn't quite resonating of course now i think it would because after covid people Mm are fine with being at home but sadly we didn't we didn't make it to COVID I mean we we were doing fairly well but my relationship with my business partner was kind of deteriorating so we you know when you get started you got all the hope and all the dreams Mm -hmm. and all the you know all of that behind you and we had so much support because we were disrupting the bridal Mm -hmm. wear space we became bridal tech Mm. you know everything was like fash tech bridal tech this tech this tech that you know fintech and wellness tech i mean everything yeah (laughs) everything added a tech at the end of it and suddenly it was like cool so we run all these accelerators and we were you know got tons of press and all of that was kind of great and we were selling but it just kind of wasn't it, we just weren't getting over the hump and it just it wasn't quite working the way that I felt like it should have worked. Mm. Most brides would just send us a photo and say, can you do this? And it's like, well, yeah, because if you go on the dress builder, it's this yeah. neckline and this Yeah, skirt. right. Yeah. But yeah, it was like there was yeah, there was some kind of disconnect there. I, I kind of started to go in a different direction, recognizing the millennial bride and these festival weddings and wanting lots of different outfits and things that didn't look so wedding-y. Right. And the idea that you could, if you bought things in separates, wear the pieces again hmm. um, with like everyday clothing as opposed to having yeah. it sit in a box somewhere yeah. or yeah. trying Forever. to resell it or yeah. whatever. Of course, rental platforms weren't uh, besides rent the runway or whatever, they weren't really that big at the time. So mm. that's the route I had wanted to take. So I designed a collection called Maverick, uh, and it was for the you know sort of Maverick bride who wanted to do something a bit different. And we also had a slip dress, like a sort of jumpsuit, and a wrap dress that could be done in other colors. So if that's what you wanted your bridesmaids to wear, right. Or you could wear, I mean, it was like yeah. sort of, there was a lot of versatility in the idea. And it was mix and match bridal wear. So all of the pieces were designed to go with each other. And I had worked with our web developer to do this sort of like carousel. So you could like move the tops over the bottoms. We found this amazing model who stood <laughs> in exactly like the same place. And we just like changed and she was able to like put her arms and everything in the exact same place yeah. every single time so that we could get all of the shots. We did her in like sort of hero silhouettes. And then because she was so good at sort of like standing perfect, yeah. still oh in exactly God. the same spot. <laughs> yeah, our web developer could do this carousel and mm-hmm. make it match up. And that's where I saw the business going. And my business partner was like, no, we were customizable. Bre- that was the point. And I was like, yeah, but we can't hang. The idea is not working. So you yeah. got to like. Expense. Yeah. yeah. You got to cha- you got to change things up. Yeah. And I felt like what this other idea was a bit more sustainable because you could wear the pieces again. You know, mm. the tops would look really cute with jeans and heels. The skirts you could wear with like a T-shirt, go, go to a yeah. nice brunch. And we got, yeah, a great response to it in mm. terms of customer response. But I think because we'd already been having issues it just was like kind of an easy thing to Mm, sort of divide on so yeah we ended up shutting the business down Mm -hmm. and I was kind of contemplating 
starting something else. And I went back to London College of Fashion because um, mm-hmm. I had kept in touch with the course leader from the course. And I said, I'm not really sure what my next step is. I'm thinking about starting something again, but it's such a it's such a mountain to climb. And you're like pushing mm-hmm. both of a mountain. I'm yeah. not, I yeah. think I might need a, a minute. Mm-hmm. And she said, why don't you come back to the class? Like I've, I've, I've changed it completely now. The course is really different. And I really think that the students could learn from your experience. experience. And mm-hmm. I was like, all right, sure, why not? Mm-hmm. So I went and spoke to the court. And I was like, oh, that, that was pretty interesting. So then she starts kind of filling me in on more and more on all these changes and how they're coaching the students now. And they weren't even calling them students. They're calling them team entrepreneurs. And mm-hmm. it's like this kind of new way of teaching. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, this sounds kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So she said, why don't you just try the coaching? Like, here are some books on it. I think you'd be really good at it. So I sat down and did some coaching sessions with some of the team entrepreneurs. And there was just that moment where you could see the light bulb go off, mm. or I should say on, really, for that student. And I that was it. I was kind of sold. It was like, yeah, whoa. It was, yeah, it was like this, it was a feeling I'd never really had before where you kind of like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm, I might be making a difference here. Mm. And then, of course, playing back in my mind all the people along my path and my journey who switched that light bulb mm. on for me. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, maybe maybe I could hang out here for a while and yeah. do this. So, yeah, I mean, that's really kind of the journey. That was a really, really long, <laughs> long story. No, but that's, that's amazing. <laughs> and, yeah, I feel there's so many things that I want to talk about here. So I guess the first one, going back to, like, your first experiences, so – if I remember well. So you started, you wanted to be an actress mm. and then you went into journalism or like TV presenter, if you prefer. And then you went to the music industry and then you went back to college, did your course in entrepreneurship and started your business. And then that's how you evolved to get to London College of Fashion. What has helped you Like each time you had that change in step, like what did you tell yourself each time you changed, (laughs) you you changed job? Because I feel like sometimes, I mean, today, obviously, it's way easier to kind of try something out and then do something else. And then, you know, but then sometimes, you know, you have that hope of like being like, okay, now I'm going to do this thing. You know, that's the thing for me or like I'm really interested in that and I want it to work. And then obviously if it doesn't work, then you're like, shit, now what do I do, right? And then you need to start over again and again. So what was your experience with that? Like, How did you react or learn from, you know, changing careers a lot, as you said? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Firstly, I think all of those experiences kind of led me to where I am. And you sort of need all of that it's it's all it's all of those things that kind of prepare you i used all of those things in entrepreneurship but i think well two things maybe it goes back to my name actually means rebirth apparently so i, I don't mm. know if there's something about me that's sort of like phoenix wanting mm. to rise from the ashes so it's mm. like try this also there were a couple of kind of mantras that i had for a long time no fear was one of them like just you know, just kind of you can live your life in fear and regret or you can just try something, just do it. And mm. if like what's the worst that could happen, really, yeah. you know, I yeah. mean, because if you fail, there's always a tomorrow. So there's kind of no excuse to not just try, try. Mm. unless, of course, somebody else's life is at risk or something yeah. like that. You yeah. know, I mean, there's a really interesting scene. There's a, a series on Elizabeth Holmes, who's a, an entrepreneur, right? She's that mm. kind of. Well, infamous yeah. for trying to do the healthcare thing and telling people that from a prick a finger and like a drop of blood that you could find out whether or not they had all these diseases, et cetera, et cetera. So she goes to her college professor at Stanford and is telling her about this idea. And, you know, she quotes Yoda and says, you know, there is no do or do not or whatever. There is no try. And the woman just like freaks out on her and she's like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> why are you quoting like, the, yeah. you know, you've got, you know, you try and you try and you try, you know, like you do need to do the research. Like there mm-hmm. needs to, you know, but I, I think maybe I was a bit ADHD. And so mm-hmm. 
I didn't put a lot of thought into things. So mm-hmm. that sort of no fear thing would just kind of click over my head and I'd just go and do something without overthinking it, without, mm-hmm. yeah, worrying about what could the con- yeah, yeah, what the consequences would be for better or for worse. Yeah. But also, I think I remember, I can't remember who said it to me at some point in my life, too, about the two-second rule. Like, if you wait, you could get stuck. So it was sort of like, if I waited too long doing something that I knew wasn't right for mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. then I was afraid of getting stuck. So it was just like, okay, I just kind of have to jump right, to the next it. thing. Yeah. and. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I feel very, very, very fortunate that things, I don't want to say fell into my lap, but that I would be able to recognize an opportunity that would appear mm-hmm. and that I, you know, had enough confidence or enough courage to just try and grab hold of it. Now, there are lots of opportunities that did come about and I didn't yeah. take advantage, but I mean, I'm not. I'm not upset about where I am, so I have to – there's a part of me that kind of believes that kind of what's meant to be will happen. You just said, like, that, you know, some opportunities came and you didn't necessarily take them. What made you take those decisions? Well, at the time – I remember a lot of that happened in my acting career. So Mm. you get a lot of offers for things come up, and when you're – when you're an actress, it, it's a tough spot, especially back then. I mean, this was back in the days when, you know, all the Harvey Weinstein stuff. Mm. Anyone who says they didn't know that he was doing that mm. is a liar because yeah. I was there. And mm. even I knew as a lowly nobody mm. that if you got a meeting with Harvey Weinstein, that's what you could expect would happen. I mean, casting couch was very, very normal. So you really had to wear your armor and be mm. like, I'm not really sure – if this is going to be the best choice for my career, because mm-hmm. at that time, any little thing that you did could kind of ruin your chances for being picked for something that mm. you really wanted. So it's less like that now. I feel like actors can kind of they can do whatever they want. They could do TV series. They can do film they can do adverts commercials and they mm-hmm. nothing is like a bad mm-hmm. choice mm-hmm. but back then it was like i knew taking the tv presenter role to pick something that was kind of obscure and wouldn't be on a major network or anything so that i, I could use it as experience mm-hmm. and a stepping stone but that it wouldn't be too big that it would keep me from getting mm-hmm. other opportunities that I want because I really wanted to be a film actress. Mm -hmm. So through doing that, though, I got offers to do like Ocean Pacific OP. Mm -hmm. It was like bathing suits and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Wanted me to be one of their brand ambassadors. And I turned I turned it down. Probably. I mean, would have been amazing Mm -hmm. money and it would have, you know, probably could have catapulted. But it was then very bikini model ish. Mm -hmm. I also got an offer offer to be on MTV and present. Mm -hmm for like some MTV thing and mm. I turned it because there again it was like I don't want to be pigeonholed as a mm. TV presenter which and now looking back I'm like you dummy yeah. <laughs> I mean what, what's yeah. wrong with that yeah. like it would have been a great career but I had my site set I wanted to be Meryl Streep so yeah Meryl Streep wouldn't be romping around a beach in her bikini mm. so mm. yeah no, that makes sense and what what happens when you actually realize okay um not made for this or like this is not for me because I, I guess you know everyone has big dreams right mm. everyone has and I, f- I feel like the dream of being an actress is like especially a, a big one and something that you know is really glamorized and like there's a lot of people who dream about being actors or actresses but that works in every everything in life like whatever you are passionate about if you have a dream you're like you know you want to make it happen right so I guess what happens when you actually realize that maybe this is not the right thing? Every career, except for the music industry, for, for whatever reason, leaving that was not as, I don't want to say devastating. It was like a death mm-hmm. leaving it, you know, because it was it was such a big part of who I was. I mean, mm-hmm. I literally could not remember a time in my life growing up when I, that's not, when that's not what I wanted. I mean, everything that I did, I was in singing lessons, dancing lessons, doing every theater 
musical theater, everything that I, kids theater, everything that I could possibly do, mm-hmm. I did. So in, in pursuit of that. So leaving it behind was a really, really painful decision at the time. I remember it was like an ex-boyfriend of mine had given me, he was in LA and I had moved to New York, like, well, I was considering moving to New York at that point. Like, I had just gone for the summer mm-hmm. because there was an actor strike and a writer strike pending in L.A. But friend, actor friends of mine in New York were like, oh, no, you should come to New York. There's still stuff going on here. So it's just going to go for the summer. And then I got then the job for Universal kind of like came up and everybody was like, oh, you should go for that job. Like, it it sounds really cool. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I don't I really want to be sitting at a desk. And but I thought, oh, but I suppose if I would take that kind of job that would be the coolest kind of desk job you could have is Mm. like you know working in music or whatever so I made the decision to take that job and I remember the boyfriend had given me a candle and he was like this whole note and every you know it was like oh light this candle and you know like sort of meditate on it and then Mm. blow out the candle and sort of like your decision will be there Mm. and yeah I did that and I I sobbed and yeah, packed up my stuff and yeah, just I went to New York and I thought, I mean, my dad kind of said to me, oh, well, you know, if you don't like the music industry, if you don't like the job, you know, you can always leave it yeah. and go back to acting. And I was like, huh, okay. But it's somehow in my heart of hearts, I knew I, yeah. I wasn't going to go back. Like yeah. I was making a decision. Yeah. And crazy that. The day after I had packed up all my stuff and flown back to New York, the next morning, 9-11, oh. 2001. Oh, my God. Yep. Oh, my God, I have chills. <laughs> so wow. I woke up that morning to yeah. planes had flown into the yeah. World Trade Center, and I was just like, what? Like, yeah. how did? How could the airport have screwed up so bad? Like, I, it never even entered my mind. That it could have been what it was. I just, I thought maybe air traffic control messed up. Yeah. And I stood on a fire escape in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and watched the towers fall. Oh, my God. What a first day in New York. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I had been there for the summer, but, like, I literally just accepted the job at Universal. And, like, that was really devastating, too. So there was kind of, like, a mixture of... I mean, just morning leaving, you know, deciding not to do that. But then also all of that that had happened Mm. that was just, that was, that whole sort of month was a a blur. Mm. I don't really remember a lot of it. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. I've seen a lot of stories of, I mean, New Yorkers or even American people talking about it and they, they all have the same thing, you know, they all say that it was such a traumatizing event. And yeah, I must imagine for you, like being in that, state in your life as well like it's already a big change to like turn that chapter for you for um acting and like moving into a new city and starting a new life and then that happens it's it's crazy that that was 22 years ago yeah I and it's only just recently that I've able to talk about it without crying because for Mm. I mean you carry that Mm. for so long yeah seeing something like that happen right in front of your Mm. eyes and I think also because I was, you know, I was 25 at the time. So something like that it's happens big, at that age. Yeah. You're, it, yeah, it kind yeah. of impacts you because you're still kind of a kid, really. Mm. So, and yeah. you're out on your own, and it was just sort of like I just want to be, mm. like I just want to give my parents a hug, yeah. you know, like yeah, I just want to know that everything's okay. And yeah. you, d- you're like I know that it probably isn't, and it may never be again. Mm. So, yeah crazy stuff yeah crazy wow so yeah i mean and when things like that happen too you just kind of realize as well like you just and then you think about the pandemic it's when these kinds of events happen it it's kind of like an opportunity for us to reset ourselves and Mm. say you know what life's too short yeah a lot of crazy shit can happen so just try it and start something new and yeah exactly Yeah. yeah that makes sense Make change. <laughs> yeah, make change, make change happen. Yeah, I feel like we're like, it's that's exactly the topic of the conversation and also what I'm trying to bring to the table is that we need to be more innovative. We need to bring light on those people like you who are kind of trying to challenge the status quo and like change stuff. And 
push the boundaries a little bit and especially in the fashion industry where you know I feel has a lot to give and is an amazing industry right mm. but there's also a lot of things that needs changing a lot of things <laughs> yeah it's such um, it, I with every industry that I go into yeah there's this you think like from the top part it looks all shiny and amazing yeah, yeah. and then there's this really ugh, yeah. like just <laughs> dark nasty <gasps> underbelly to it. I mean even the music industry as well like this yeah. stuff that the labels would put the artists through it's just like oh can yeah. I can I do anything that's yeah, not that, like... like that doesn't yeah get yeah. me into that yeah. yeah yeah I can relate to that from what I've seen and heard and like all the stories I've heard as well from people we'll talk about the fashion industry in a bit just going back into like your experience so fast forward to when you're starting your entrepreneurial journey right and being a founder and like building your own business with your co-founder something that is a bit I feel a bit taboo in the world of entrepreneurship and like startups and stuff is that there's always something about co-founders like there's always mm. something about the relationship like if you're by yourself obviously you're by yourself but like if you have a co-founder or two or three co-founders mm. then it's really important to be able to manage those relationship wells because it's yes. very tricky and specific how did you manage the relationship and what did you learn from working with someone else because you said that it deteriorated a bit at the end it's interesting because there are two or three sides to this because now being on the academic side and knowing the things that we work on in the course, it's really difficult to do anything by yourself. I mean, it really takes a team of people to really, if you want to get something done and, and do it well, mm -hmm. it, yeah, it's, it's really difficult to do it by all on your own. So I did need her. I just, yeah, I just didn't know how to balance that relationship. I think also we stupidly didn't put in place a partnership agreement hmm. from the very beginning to really delineate what was my responsibility, what was her responsibility, what were our expectations of each other, mm -hmm. what was the day-to-day -day going to look like. Yeah, we'd never really sat down and put those things in writing. And I think that's in extremely important. Even if you think your best of friend, because she and I, were we were actually really good friends. I miss her because we enjoyed each other's company. And that's what, what made it so difficult when I get so angry with her about stuff because it's yeah. like, I didn't want to be angry with her because she was a friend. But, yeah. you know, when I felt like things just weren't either happening as quickly as they needed to happen or um, things got a little sloppy or, yeah, having... Expect managing each other's expectations, knowing a lot about the other person. And I don't mean from a friendship perspective. I mean from like a, a team or leadership perspective. Mm. So all of those Myers-Briggs tests and all of, you know, but to really look at them and say, okay, what does this mean? If you're a complete or finisher mm -hmm. or you're a, you know, a plant or, you know, whatever, all of the terminology, what what does that actually mean? What do you bring to the table and what what can I bring to the table to kind of even out? And we were yin and yang, like she's very analytical. So the way that right. she kind of processed things mm -hmm. was a skill set that I just did not have. Right. I'm more gut. We both were very passionate. She's from Brazil. So she I think just by nature was very passionate, but I mm -hmm. something would set me off and I would just like. Rah! So yeah. she was good for me in a lot of ways, but because we never really decided in advance what those relationship would be, because yeah. obviously it's different from your friendship, right? Yes. Yeah. So no matter how well you think you know someone or mm -hmm. how well you think it's all going to go, yeah, you should mm -hmm. really sit down. It doesn't take that much money to start a lot of businesses. I mean, you can really test an idea um, using, you know, what, what's called like a pre-totype and then make samples of things. And there's so many opportunities now to pre-sale or, you know, to like Kickstarter, get crowdfunding, things like that. You don't need a whole, but spend the money to get a partnership agreement. And that goes for like one 
person or five people or whatever. I have heard from others that when there are more co-founders, sometimes it's better because there's like a third or fourth mm. person to kind of weigh in when yeah. there's a disagreement mm. or a stalemate or a deadlock. But I'm sure they have their own unique problems as well. So, yeah, I think if I'd had some coaching skills, if I'd had some proper sort of like if I had read some books on leadership or, you know, kind of mm. taken some stock yeah. in it, I think things might have been different. Mm. So the advice you would give is like manage expectations, get that partnership agreement, mm. even if it's a bit painful because you're friends and you don't want that, uh, get that written down because, yeah, yeah, managing expectations and managing each other's, I guess, personalities as yeah. well. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, do those – there are lots of free personality tests and, mm. uh, that are – I would do the ones that are geared towards, like, teamwork and mm. leadership, not the – like, yeah, yeah. what does Vogue or yeah. Cosmopolitan say about me? Are you more a Vogue person or <laughs> – Are you a Carrie or a Miranda? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, definitely they, they can be very useful, but you can't just, like, read the report and be like, okay, mm. like, you need to actually delve into it and yeah. talk about what – the report means mm. like what do these things mean and you know what skills what knowledge skills and abilities do you feel like you bring to the table mm -hmm. and where are the gaps in both parties so mm -hmm. you might actually find out that as co-founders you're still missing like a big piece of the puzzle or, <laughs> or yeah. pie yeah and then you're yeah. like okay well we need to mm. make sure that we've you know got that covered mm. so that when the time comes and the shit hits the fan and it always does mm -hmm. you can manage through it or limp through it and mm. you can help each other as opposed to mm. wanting to blow each other up so it's like you know like a good military unit or something yeah. like that where yeah, you know, they yeah. all as a team they all know what their strengths and you know each mm. of them has like a task and they know what their jobs are and there's no question about who's doing what at mm. what time like we just we didn't have that and i right. Yeah, I felt like I worked 24-7. Mm -hmm. And when I would talk to her, she'd be like, oh, I was just, you know, like playing a game on my phone or something. Like I said, what she did was really important. Maybe I wasn't being a good leader because I could have said, well, you know, can you do this, this or that? But yeah. I also was a control freak and I didn't want to give up control over certain mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it's important to look at yourself as well and do a lot of self-reflection if you're going into business and... Yeah, and, yeah. and want to work with other people. You've got to get that peer assessment yeah, and then do a self-reflection. I think that's so important uh, what you just said because, I mean, being very early in my entrepreneurship journey as well and building my own business, well, obviously I'm by myself um, for now, so it's a bit different, but I feel that piece around being very self-aware is so important because... I mean, you think you know yourself, but wait until you have to like build a business and like face your own kind of insecurities or fears or whatever you, you have and kind of realize that actually you need to be super aware of yourself and know when you need to stop, when you need to start, all the things that you like, that you don't like. And I think that's a good segue actually to one of the questions I wanted to ask you, the London College of Fashion and what you're doing there. I'm very passionate about leadership and corporate culture. I've been very lucky to be able to do huge culture transformation projects for fashion houses. And it was amazing to do that. But obviously, it's not the case for every fashion companies or fashion houses to really care about culture and employee engagement and diversity and inclusion and, and so on. And I think the fact that the fashion industry is still seen as such a privileged industry makes it a bit toxic in a yes. way. And I think that change definitely needs to happen, at least at the start from the top. But places at the leadership now in the fashion industry are very locked and stuff. So I'm wondering, because you are working with students, right? And you are seeing like all the great projects that they're working on and the person that they're becoming. What kind of leaders do you see emerging from your students and like what are the traits that you think are going to I don't know be important as you know leaders of fashion in the future the way that we teach and I'm going to put air quotes around teach because we really kind of say that we coach the team entrepreneurs 
for stu- you know, students through developing their brands and businesses. So we use what's called Team Academy. So in Finland in the 90s, one of the big universities, uh, it's free to go to university there, by the way. So all of these students were going through university. Apparently there was a recession going on and they couldn't find jobs when they got out. So a group of professors got together and said, what if we developed kind of like an entrepreneurship or enterprise program that prepared the students for industry by basically like getting them to develop their own business? And then Mm. they can that then they'll have a job when they finish because they'll have their own business. So basically they can spend the three years in university you know, building a business together with a team of other students. Mm -hmm. So they developed this concept and they basically borrowed and kind of, I don't know if steal is really the right word because it's not like um, the, the concepts and the frameworks and stuff. I mean, they're, they're out there. They're used by lots of really big companies or big former companies. For example, Motorola used this sort of like pre and post project analysis uh, that, again, became sort of this Team Academy-ism. They call it a pre- and post-Motorola because Motorola Mm. was like the company that used it, where it's kind of looking at uh, before you start a project, what do you need, you know, what tools, who do you need to talk, et cetera, et cetera. And then post is like what worked, what didn't work, what did we learn from it, and, you know, what are we going to do moving forward? So, like, what's our action plan? Mm -hmm. So they used all of these kinds of tools and, you know, kind of threw it in there and they said, OK, it's going to be learning by doing. No lectures, no tests. You're just going to develop a business on the course and you'll be graded on whether or not you make money. Can you launch it? Is it a successful business? And we're, you know, the coaches were there to kind of like support them through the process. Mm-hmm. So this pedagogy or that's actually called a hutagogy um, because it's mm-hmm. self-determined learning. It's self-directed learning. So the student or the learner is responsible for learning whatever it is that they want to learn. And Mm -hmm. the coach is just there to ask really powerful questions in order to kind of like get them to the next step. So in using that, leadership and team are like two of the pillars that go with that. You have to be a leader within a team and you have to understand what it means to be a team member within that team so kind of what I see happening and the way that we've kind of positioned the course and I think generally this is the way leadership is working maybe not in the fashion industry but definitely in other industries Mm -hmm. is well team academy calls it friendship leadership like it that's how it translates and finish but it is leading from within the team so we actually again I'm gonna put air quotes around teach but the coaching techniques, mm-hmm. so how how to team coach, how to peer coach, mm-hmm. but also how to team coach. Because really, being a leader isn't about a top-down sort mm-hmm. of, I'm going to tell you what to mm-hmm. do and now you're going to go do it. It's about empowering the people around you mm-hmm. by asking them powerful questions so that they feel part of the movement. They feel part of fixing the problem or part of developing the next thing, whether it's a a new product or a new silhouette or a new garment or whatever, you know, whatever it is, they are part of that because they've been empowered by their leader to do so rather than saying, okay, yep, here's this, this, this. Now you go and do this. It's about, well, what would you do? How would you go about this? Those kinds of questions. So it's more of a collaborative process. Again, the hope is that these team entrepreneurs or students will go off and become the next leaders. Mm -hmm. But in all honesty, if they leave the fashion industry entirely and go do something else. Yeah, that's great as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I see this course being a vehicle for social purpose. So I'm not that interested in whether or not, I mean, I'd be thrilled for my students if they become hugely successful, Mm -hmm. but I'm more interested in, who they are as human beings. Like, are they going out there to be a better human being and want caring about people, planet, process, Mm. and being part of 
the solution and not part of the problem. And again, it goes back to that leadership. How do they tackle a problem? It takes reflection. It takes having a team of people. Mm. It takes having a really strong vision, knowing what you want, and not stopping at failure. Like, So if it doesn't work out the first time around, that's all right. How can we iterate mm. and try this better. again? Yeah. And so it's resilience, it's that resilience, it's agility, and just realizing that the world is never going to be a perfect place. Volatile, uncertain, well, there's an acronym called VUCA. VUCA, yeah. yeah. Volatile, uncertain, I forgot to see, ambiguous. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, how do you, as a leader, or as a, te- you know, how do you face the world mm. when it's there's always going to be i mean mm. VUCA was around i mean it's been around since like the 70s it was like the vietnam war is you know kind of where it came from so there's always these huge life events that are going to happen that are going to cause all kinds of waves of changes and, yeah, yeah. Mm. they're only going to get more frequent unless we start making change yeah and it's in that discomfort of uncertainty and volatility and ambiguity that innovation happens. So we mimic that on the course, in a way. <laughs> we don't give a lot of direction. I mean, they basically all have to unlearn what they know about traditional education because they're used to somebody standing in front of them, holding all the knowledge and lecturing to them and giving them PowerPoints and saying, this is what you should learn This is how you should learn it, and it's from Mm. my perspective, and there is no other way but this way. Mm. And we don't do that. We sit in a circle. We don't even allow tech in the classroom, so no laptops, no phones, because it's a distraction. And we want everybody to be present Mm. and contributing because, Mm. again, as a team, if we're all sharing our knowledge, skills, and abilities with each other, we get so much more accomplished. So if we're distracted by TikTok and Buying an outfit on Farfetch or shopping for shoes or whatever it is or texting with our friends or roommates or then we're not fully present. And the team can actually feel that like Mm. you can feel it when somebody's like not in the room anymore. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So that's how we see the leadership happening. It's Mm. like you've got to kind of take it all in, Mm. get really uncomfortable with it, talk about it, reflect on it and then. In the end, you become a stronger, more confident person mm. who isn't afraid you're, that your ego is not going to shatter if your idea doesn't get used, mm. you know, or if people don't do everything in exactly the way that you mm. want them to. It's like, yeah. that's not how life works. So yeah. Yeah. it's better to work together, be collaborative and empower each other than mm. try and squash everybody down and just yeah, of course. to yeah. climb higher. Like The world yeah. doesn't need another... Jeff Bezos. I'm definitely in that mindset as well. And that's exactly what I want to also tell employees and leaders in organizations. And I feel like the fact that, you know, we are being innovative and that you are in like the indication, it's also like very innovative way of thinking. And I thought that actually I wasn't that innovative. I mean, I was like, you know, that's kind of obvious after everything that happens with COVID. Like, Everyone must be thinking the same now. We need to change and we need to... But then actually some people were like, well, that's still quite a new way of thinking. Like people are not still not quite ready for that change or they don't want to see it or like they... Or whatever. So I think it's super powerful that you are kind of teaching that teaching Mm -hmm. with quotes (laughs) with your students because that's exactly the type of people and leader that we need in the future and I think you said also something really interesting about helping them build businesses that are more purposeful for people and planet and the environment and everything and I find that fashion and I mean a lot of other industries but because we talk about fashion has always been about profit and consumerism that's the essence of fashion right so how do we move that mindset in this industry from profit to purpose And how do you teach that as well to your students? Because obviously we can't forget the profit part, right? We need to make money. That's, you know, fashion is, that's an industry where that's how it works. But then how do you make some compromise as well and leave some space for that purpose piece, right? Because... Yeah, I mean, honestly, we'd need so much more time with them. (laughs) So it's just about planting seeds, really. I was really naive when I first started doing this and thinking that, 
oh, we're going to make all this change, you know? It's like, it doesn't really work that way. (laughs) Five years on, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm just happy that I've planted some seeds. Mm. And we've changed some learning outcomes and course aims. So my predecessor um, retired, and I always joke that she was the Willy Wonka, and I was just like the Charlie Bucket who got the golden <laughs> tickets. She had reapproved the course to kind of be the coaching, which was her choice. But oddly enough, she often struggled with switching out of lecture mode into. So she had to do a lot of unlearning herself. Like she knew mm. this was the way forward, but it's hard to undo what you've always done. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing again was fear. Like oh but the students are expecting us to lecture to them. So if they if we don't do that, mm. they're going to be angry mm. and they're going to want their money back and they're not going to understand. So it took a minute. Well, the first cohort really hated us, <laughs> like 18 of them, and they were like, what did, what is this? Like, yeah, I don't right. get it. Because we were <laughs> That's not of, what I applied for. Yeah. <laughs> and because we were kind of stumbling along with it, 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 like, I felt bad. They were kind of guinea pigs. But, I mean, we still, you know, it's interesting because I still keep in touch with quite a few of them. And the ones who keep in touch with me were like, no, I, I get it. Like, I actually got a lot out of it. I know mm-hmm. that you guys didn't really know what you were doing, but that was okay. And at the end of the day, we are all just learning together. I mean, I, every year, learn more from my team entrepreneurs probably than they learn from me. It's very fascinating. And they've got all these amazing ideas. But yeah, my predecessor retired and kind of, you know, left me the <laughs> the chocolate <Yeah>. factory. <laughs> and I recently got the opportunity to to make some changes. So I um, brought on to my team a gal named Sabina Rakamova. She's got a, a sustainable and ethical women's wear brand called Sabina Studios. And it was her really who, I mean, I sustainability and ethical consumption, all of that stuff has always been something that I've been passionate about, but she's actually studied it. So mm. for her, it's like, no, we need to embed this. And the university wanted to embed it in the curriculum anyway, but it was sort of like, okay, how do we do this though? Because also keeping in mind, we're going to have students from all over the world, right? And from Mm. places where sustainability just doesn't, it's just a a word that kind of floats around in the air and nobody actually knows what it means Mm. or knows how to practice it. Mm. So can we really expect a student who's coming here after, you know, 20 something years of not knowing what that is and in 15 weeks like knowing how to build a sustainable business. Yeah. We we need to we need to be gentle. Yeah. Slow, yeah. Is the Italians say piano piano. It's like <laughs> slowly slowly, right? So we're able to embed some things to say, okay, you need to consider this. Like how is your concept future proofed? Mm-hmm. Because you're thinking about regenerative circular i mean look at the trends that are out there like it's they're they've come to london college of fashion to be open to Mm. you know the trends and what's happening Mm. so you know they've now got all of this access to business of fashion and all of these incredible resources that are telling them sustainability is the way to go and Mm. it's not what you think i mean most of them in the you know the first couple of weeks or even in interviews when they are telling me what sustainability is mm-hmm. i'm like oh man <laughs> this is so you're just yeah. you're so greenwashed yeah. like yeah. so yeah it's it's a tough it's a really tough one but i also i will say this i went to an enterprise conference last summer and i there was a guy from stanford who did a keynote speech and he was really really I mean, it was great it was mm-hmm. like a ted talk you know right. and he was talking about his enterprise program and how this the student of his came to and said, you know, I'm I'm gluten intolerant and there aren't any places around that I can go to get gluten free baked goods. Like there are no cafes, so I want to open up a, a bakery for you know gluten free mm-hmm. baked goods. And he was like, okay, that's that's a good start. That's a good. Mm-hmm. And she's like, what do you mean that's a good start? Like that. And she, he was like, well. How how can we make this bigger? Like, what is your true aim here? Yeah. And when you got down to the bottom of it, really what she wanted to do was to help anyone who has a gluten intolerance Mm -hmm. feel safe when they go to a restaurant or a bakery or whatever that the food that they're eating is – it doesn't have gluten in it. Yeah. So long story short, by the end of this program, she'd actually developed a a device – 
So she went from wanting to just do a gluten-free bakery to developing a device that you could use to test your food with to see how much gluten was in it. Wow. And a community that to share, you know, so you're sharing that information Mm. with everyone, restaurant, bakery, whatever, and also talking about your experience. That's the kind of thing that needs to happen. Mm. We need to go away from the students who come onto the course thinking, I want to start another, I want to start a sustainable fashion brand. It's Mm. like, yeah, but if everybody says, I want to start a sustainable fashion brand, it's Mm. not sustainable because sustainability means not making more. Yeah. So the innovation part of it has to be, okay, in the same way that you have to unlearn what you know about education, you need to unlearn what you know or think you know about sustainability Mm. and unlearn what you your whole life has told you about consumption Mm. of fashion goods Mm. and it's difficult because Mm. we live in a world where we're constantly bombarded with yeah like information about what sustainability is or is not and but not even that but just what's new and what's next and what's cool and what's what's gonna make you look good and what's gonna make you feel good and instagram and tiktok images everywhere constantly we can't get away from it and then you're walking past shops of beautiful clothes and you're like oh yeah it's really difficult difficult. yeah and tempting i imagine it's like be you know being gluten intolerant walking through you know a city full of bakeries and be like oh i can't have any of it yeah yeah. so yeah it's it's, but i feel like the point here and you, you touched on that very well is like it's not about building another business. It's about why you do it. Because, like, the story of, like, this girl who wanted to build a gluten-free bakery, at the end of the day, what she wanted to do was to help other people who are, like, gluten in- intolerant, right? And that's how change happens, right? It's not just because I want to do this new business. It's about what change do you want to see happening and why do you want to do it, right? Yeah. It's yeah. So, it's solving a customer problem. It's design yeah. thinking, really. Yeah. So I, I always a red flag goes up when a, a student when I say, OK, well, who is your customer base? And they're like, oh, well, they're like me. They're this, the, you know, and it's like, OK, so are you the only customer? <laughs> because you can't just build a business yeah. for yourself. I mean, you need to be solving a bigger problem. problem. And if yeah. you're not, mm. then you need to ask yourself what the point is Mm. because it's you know the world does not need another Mm. fashion brand it just doesn't yeah for sure yeah well um i mean we've talked about so much interesting stuff um i guess you know something that would be probably really valuable for um listeners if they are you know other i don't know maybe aspiring fashion um leaders who want to build at least purposeful business (laughs) business <laughs> it's I not sustainable like bashing, bashing. <laughs> no but like something you know if yeah if they want to build a business a fashion business uh, or they want to be entrepreneurs what advice would you give them like what would be the first most important advice that you would give them two things because it's 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 impact it's what what mm. what is the impact you're making which does go to the problem solving thing like what and there, so Simon Sinek is a great, yeah. you yeah, know of about Simon yeah. Sinek, yeah. And we talk about Sinek a lot, a lot on the course, so finding your why. Yeah. And I think I've found asking why questions can be feel very daunting because they seem a lot bigger mm-hmm. than if you ask what questions. Mm-hmm. What questions tends to break things down into more digestible mm-hmm. bits. So mm-hmm. if asking yourself, your what is my why, is mm-hmm. too big... It's okay. Just start yeah. with what. What do I want to do, really? Mm-hmm. What is it that I'm, you know, what what's my purpose with this brand? Mm-hmm. What change do I want to make? Mm-hmm. What problems do I want to solve? And eventually you'll get to that sort of bigger why. Mm. But, yeah, human-centered design. Mm. Customer first and being empathetic with customer. I think... You know, we talk about inclusive fashion from, you know, perspective of size. Mm -hmm. But there's so much more 
to inclusive fashion than just size. Yeah, of course, yeah. So if we're going to make clothing, let's make it count. Mm -hmm. Like, let's let's make it do more than just cover our bodies Mm. and look good. Like, so many people are suffering with mental anxiety, you know, especially after the pandemic, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. anxiety is such a huge issue now. What if what you wore could make you feel better? Like, because I don't know the way it's going to sound really horrible to compare it to dogs, but there are these things called thunder shirts for dogs <laughs> yeah. that are supposed to make them feel more comfortable during yeah. thunderstorms and stuff like that. Like yeah. it like gives them almost like a hug. So mm-hmm. what if what if there was clothing? You know what I'm saying? So it's yeah, like that could, you can, feel if, this way. Yeah, yeah. So if we're going to make more clothes. Mm then let's make them for a bigger purpose than right. just, you yeah. know, to adorn ourselves with mm. something different. Or, mm. you know, I mean, we all forget about Tom's, but actually Tom's was a great business model. Buy one, give a pair to someone in need, you mm. know? So, yeah. again, bringing it back to that social purpose or for a while there was a tension focused on cultural misappropriation and Mm, you know all of us kind of realized oh my gosh there's all these artisans in these places who Mm. their their ideas are getting stolen Mm. and come you know big fashion brands like zara and Mm. primark and all the rest of it h&m are are stealing and they're putting it all over their dresses and stuff and that poor artisan doesn't even know it exists because they don't they're not on the internet or whatever Mm -hmm. so Again, things like that, and I shouldn't say it's not even just artisans from small villages. I mean, regular artists who yeah, yeah. also getting ripped off. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, if there's just like ways that mm-hmm. we can make a difference, that yeah, yeah, is I think asking the question, you know, is this going to make a difference, and what what impact yeah. will it make? It's a good start. Yeah, it's yeah. a good start. Amazing. Well, I guess. You know, we're getting to the end of the podcast, unfortunately. After all the things that we talked about today and knowing that the title of the podcast is Wonder Walkers, what would you say is your superpower? Mm, that's a good one. We actually ask our team entrepreneurs that every year. Like, it's one of the first sort of like icebreakers. I would say, you know, a phoenix rising from the ashes. So I think my superpower mm. is being able to sort of rise from the ashes yeah yeah amazing love that and last question who would you like to hear from next in this podcast in terms of change makers doesn't have to be fashion i would love to hear i mean i'm a big fan of leadership as well so Mm -hmm. yeah kind of more on like female leadership and you know changes from the top kind Mm. of thinking through you kind of touched on it for a second too it's the imposter syndrome Mm, yeah so when you look around the room and it's like you know in essence you're kind of lucky to be sitting at the table but Mm. that that just like shouldn't be that way so yeah that yeah something something around that I think would be really really interesting interesting I love that yeah I'll think about it make some research cool well thank you so much Stacia I mean it was great it went so fast and I love that because that means it was a great conversation (laughs) so uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, you know your journey your experience and all your um, advice as well it was really interesting Mm -hmm. thanks for having me yeah it was was really fun (laughs) thank you Follow the Wonder Walkers podcast so that every two weeks you can get notified when a new episode is out. And I must say, if you don't, that's okay. But that would be a big miss because we have more inspiring and powerful guests to come. So let's meet up in two weeks for a new episode of Wonder Walkers, a podcast that transports you into the world of our modern change catalysts and empowers you too to change the world. This podcast is created and hosted by me, Laura Warnod, founder of The Culture Cabinet. Thank you to Content is Queen for producing the podcast. But above all, thank you for listening. See you soon.